I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to I Like to Movie Movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I'm back with a brand new episode. I've got an interview with a filmmaker and a star coming up, but before we get into that, I just want to do a little housekeeping here. I Like to Movie Movie, of course, can be found at Movie Movie Cast on all social media. So please like, subscribe, share with your friends, leave a comment. I'm always looking for feedback. Um, stay tuned after the interview. I'm going to do a little bit of movie chatter and a couple announcements for the show from there. But we should get right into it. And I say that uh, as I fail to bring up my notes, and now you have to listen to me as I scroll through the screenshots that I took of the Twitter message through which I booked this interview. So um, what we have coming up is an interview with the writer and director, as well as the star of a movie that you can see now on demand called Dreaming Hollywood. I'm going to read the little description here for you. All right. Described as fear and loathing in Las Vegas meets Tarantino action, Dreaming Hollywood takes a deep dive into Ray Balfi's bizarre world of drug dealers, prostitutes, dirty cops, and social rejects as he tries to begin a new life direction and shops his cartoon screenplay to 100 L.A. production companies. While facing rejection after rejection, Ray learns that someone has stolen his script and made his movie The Dog's Meow without his permission. Now Ray's already messed up life is thrown into catastrophic mayhem as he seeks revenge. Who stole his script? Everyone he meets is suspect as Ray is now motivated with a new lust for life. And for blood! Like that. In addition to winning the Audience Award at the Erie International Film Festival, as well as winning the Best Feature Film at the London International Monthly Film Festival, Dreaming Hollywood continues its journey through the festival circuit, being officially selected at the upcoming Baja California International Film Festival, the Los Angeles Lift-Off Film Festival, the Studio City International Film and TV Festival, the Rome International Movie Festival, and the Four Theater Movies Film Festival in the Best Film and Best screenplay categories so the star of the show is an actor named turk matthews who i'll be talking to in a few minutes and the film itself is written and directed by frank martinez who i will also be speaking to it was actually kind of fun because um i don't pay extra money for zoom so i am limited at a 40 minute conversation if it has more than two parties we all know how this works and i'm not fucking paying i'm never gonna pay for this fuck that luckily frank and turk were in the same room so i was able to speak to them on free zoom without having to worry about exceeding 40 minutes now funnily enough we did not exceed 40 minutes it's a tight interview but it's a really really good one um i enjoyed dreaming hollywood quite a bit Nine times out of ten, when I come across an independent movie that claims to be Coen Brothers adjacent or have Tarantino action, I put it on and it is bland, boring, overstuffed, stupid, cheap, and a waste of time. And uh, not the case with Dreaming Hollywood. Almost immediately upon starting this film, I found myself laughing. Uh, the characters are very Coen-esque. Um, 
I don't know if Tarantino action is even a phrase that, that I have a concept for, but this is a sort of Tarantino-y uh, riff. Uh, but it's a lot of fun, and it's one of those movies that is a labor of love from people who didn't quite have the resources to put a movie together, so they just pulled together what they had and ended up kind of getting a miracle. I mean, it's a miracle for any movie to be made. So for a movie to be made by people who do not have the resources and for it to kick as much ass as Dreaming Hollywood does is just, it's a miracle times 10. So it is now available on demand. I highly suggest that you check it out. And uh, before or after you do, uh, check out this interview with Frank Martinez. And why am I forgetting Turk's last name? <laughs> and Turk Matthews. I don't know why Turk Matthews didn't feel like a real name for a second. But it is a real name, and he exists, and I spoke to him, and you're about to listen to it. And then stick around after the interview. I'm going to uh, go over a couple things about the show, talk a little movie stuff, have a little fun. But um, thanks again for listening, and without further ado, Frank Martinez and Turk Matthews of Dreaming Hollywood. <laughs> All right, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Um, we have with us here the uh, writer-director of Dreaming Hollywood, Frank Martinez, as well as the star, Turk Matthews. Welcome to the show. Hello, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dan. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, I caught the movie just this week. Loved it. It was so much fun. Um, just really across the board, had a blast. I, uh, I tend, when I thank see you. a movie, especially like an indie one that exceeds two hours, I always go, oh man, this, this could be an investment. But I found I was hooked the entire time. It was so colorful. The characters were all so interesting. And it was just such a fun time that I could have watched another hour of it. Wow, so yeah, you. yeah. thanks for sending it over. I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about the film and just kind of the story behind it and you know how you came to this story. It all got started because I was on a creative team. We were kind of developing some, some kind of a project and uh, the lead of this project was so paranoid. I'm talking constantly, even if we went to Kinko's and uh, she's handing the guy, the clerk there to do the copies. He's like, do you think he reads the stuff? Does he read the material? Do you think he'll steal? Do you think these people steal? And then I thought, wow, wouldn't that be interesting if someone was really, really untalented, not that this girl was untalented, she wasn't, but wouldn't it be funny if someone really, really untalented just created this piece of garbage work and was always paranoid that people were going to steal it? He goes and uh, sends the material to a bunch of studios and uh, he gets rejected. But then one day someone does steal it. And so then he goes on his quest to uh, to find out who did it and why. Right and, on. Uh, yeah. And then uh, I I wrote a scene and, you know, Turk was my buddy back then. And I said, I want to videotape a scene to see if the dialogue worked. That's all I wanted to do. With an old camera. Yeah, it was with some old uh, DVX camera. And uh, and all of a sudden we edited it together and it had this like real quirky rhythm to it. It was kind of cool. And then out of nowhere, he says, why don't you stretch this to a feature and I'll help you pay for half of it. That, that question came out of nowhere. Like it was the last thing that I would ever expect to do. And sure enough, we just fell into the spell right there and we completed the movie a few years later. Funny thing is when, when we were filming that original scene, he gave me a, a tape mustache. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was really uh, rigged together with tape mustaches and everything it was great. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I found so engaging about the movie is exactly that that quirky rhythm about it. 
because as soon as it kicked off, I was, you know, just trying to, you know, I always try and engage with the movie. And almost immediately there was this feeling of like watching one of the, the goofier Coen brothers movies, the way that the characters interact with one another. Very fast dialogue, very quippy dialogue, but no two characters are really the same. And right. when you have such a broad expanse of characters, that just makes for, for a damn good time. And so question for you, Turk, uh, yeah. where does where does Ray come from? Um, it's weird because he's kind of, he, he, we, we developed him over a period of time. He, originally Frankie wanted him right to be just a despicable person. And we kind of, as fil filming went on, we kind of, he grew into almost endearing, an endearing person and you're rooting for him, but he, he uh, he it's like it comes from your upbringing like you see people every day on the street and you're like it what if they had a better upbringing that he's good at heart but you know he he doesn't know any better so <laughs> it, it's 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 kind of weird how it, it it just manifested yeah like and, everything and, manifested in the whole movie and what's us. what's weird. what's cool is that he uh um turk developed him physically quite well originally i don't know how much of a fan you are of, of wrestling but back in the late 80s early 90s there was a famous wrestler named sergeant slaughter yes okay? indeed I'm and he familiar. With his crew cut short cropped hair with boxy head you know with the glasses that's how i pictured him originally and uh, over time uh ray changed that look or excuse me turk changed that look and uh and humanized him a bit more and so it was easy to write uh once once i saw who he was yeah, I thought that he would be a little better disheveled than uh, clean cut and more, you know, militant, you know, like how le le less military looking. Yeah, you know, I thought well. disheveled uh, living on the streets of L.A., you know, would, would be a better uh, way of going about the character. I think you nailed that perfect fine line because he does seem disheveled. I do identify with him. And then when he pops his shirt off and he's absolutely fucking shredded that's a that every time that happened wow. kind of like threw me yeah threw me for a loop so yeah good work whatever you this, did, this guy worked out worked out quite a bit during the production so he, he'd be he's gonna be happy to hear that actually we're in the set right now oh yeah this apartment was ray's apartment oh right on very nice yep there yeah, it is it's, it's much more luxurious now obviously but you know oh yeah, very cool <laughs> We had a, a buddy of mine, I, I worked on the show CSI as a stand-in, and uh, a buddy of mine uh, was a, a, a painter, but he knew how to make walls. So we actually, he came in and Frankie told him what he wanted, and he just built the walls inside here and, and depreciated them and made them all look like a downtrodden area in Los Angeles. Nice. Yeah, that's a, I, I love a movie that despite being, you know, kind of put together by favors and little spit and bubblegum here that ends up looking really sharp. And one of the most striking aspects of Dreaming Hollywood was the lighting. I found the lighting had so much depth. There was such a dynamic aspect to the lighting that you don't often see. Um, yeah, I, so many thank, times I see it. Thank Kevin, yeah. Very flat. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know if you can speak on the process of lighting this. Well, uh, luckily, the believe it or not, we had five, you know, because since it took us several years to finish the movie, we had five DPs over the years. And uh, luckily, they were inspired enough by the material. And luckily, Turk and I went through a, a lot of um, effort to find the right locations that it was easy to inspire the DPs. 
You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, Alex Zingaro and Adam Brandt were our two main DPs, and then we used three others over time. But uh, yeah, uh, luckily, what can I say? Luckily, I enlisted the help of some really, really talented crew. You know, yeah, yes. everything kind of manifested for us. Mm -hmm. Weird. Hey, that's the that's the magic of movies sometimes that just happens like my, my girlfriend's a theater actor and always the day before opening night she's like this is shit this whole play is falling apart and then theater magic kicks in and it all just yeah. kind of comes together isn't that so yeah. and I, I imagine it's similar for movies but you're saying this took multiple years to put together yes, how long because... how long was this uh, I would say it was about two and a half years to complete production the reason why is because Turk and I literally you, you know, he and I weren't making a lot of money at our jobs, but we paid for the movie ourselves. We would pool our paychecks together every weekend and we would say, what does your paycheck look like? What does my paycheck look like? Okay, we could probably afford to shoot this scene a week from now. And that's that's what we did the whole way. That's incredible. You know? And then there was the nightmare of scheduling all the actors, like, uh, you know, because we made the mistake of casting way too many, of creating way too many characters. And so, but somehow we pulled it off. We didn't have a choice. We had to see it to the end. Yeah, we actually, there was a day where, uh, and it actually worked out amazing that we had an actor cancel on us and we went on the fly an hour before, found the other actor and, and filmed his scene on a location that wasn't supposed to be a location for that scene. And we did a walk and talk. If you remember the scene between uh, Ray and Tiny where he meets Telegar on mm -hmm. the, and he goes, uh, what's your famous line uh where you in the desert or in the, in the well, at the trailer remember where ray meets Seliger and uh tiny right, walks right. up um what's your famous line where you go fuck the quotation oh marks. fuck the quotation yeah. marks yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um <laughs> uh that was on the fly that was uh because our other actor canceled on the day because it was a crisis. And uh, now I remember what happened that day. Yeah. We were supposed to shoot a completely different scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. And we day. had never gone over or rehearsed anything and it wasn't supposed to even be a walk and talk. So we just kind of uh, an hour before we filmed, figured that whole scene out. <laughs> and it, was, it was crazy. Did you generally allow for a lot of improvisation uh, scene to scene or did you more hew to the script? Some things because uh, because I believed in the rhythm of the dialogue, the prose, I wanted it to stay exactly as I wrote it. But then there were other scenes where I was like, OK, have loose, have fun with this. So especially if it was a more obnoxious character, um, a more outspoken, more extroverted character, like I would Todd, probably give them like like Todd Glass, like Todd Glass. I'd, I'd give him more freedom to improvise. Yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, he was he was very funny. That was a that was a very uh, odd take on a classic character, the, the dr drunken writer, not quite a uh, not quite doing what he uh, what he wants to do. Uh, another thing that stood out here and uh, really at every moment this was all the music. There's so much good score work, but then there's also the macaroni song. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I felt like at first I was like listening to it thinking like, oh, this sounds like maybe they made all the own, their own music. And that as some of it had, you know, lyrics and stuff popping through, I was like, this is this is a, a really vast project to have created all of these songs. Were these created for the film? Yeah. You, yes, they were. And you, when you're making a movie, you got to decorate the movie. You've got to decorate it here and there. And the macaroni song was the, the perfect thing to happen at that moment because, you know, it. Um, for, for starters, it serves as a contrast to when 
Ray busts down the door and we go back to the speed metal. You get what I'm mm -hmm. saying? So you go from macaroni to speed metal. It, that's a great comic effect, or at least that's how we were looking at it. So that, that's why I, that's why we did the macaroni song. Well, to compliment uh, what you just said there, I think that your film has a really good rhythm like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would alternate from being charged up into the characters to kind of getting an exhale where I get to laugh and kind of ponder what's happening with the plot. Um, and especially when it shifts into darker material, uh, it, you know, that management of tone is is not always easy. And with such a big movie, uh, I think you managed it perfectly across the board. And you're, you're using a very key word. Uh, what makes a movie work is tone and rhythm. It's not necessarily story, plot and dialogue. It's tone and rhythm is the most important part. You know, to me, agree. that's the end. To me, that's the engine, you know. I would agree, because even even a movie that has more abstraction to it, uh, you know, I find I'm not necessarily keyed into any character. But if that vibe is right, if that tone is right, you know, who's to say that the movie is is failing in any plot or story sense if that tone is there? I would imagine you're a, somewhat of a fan of David Lynch. I am a huge fan of David Lynch. So perfect example, you might be watching one of his movies and you you don't necessarily know what's going on, mm -hmm. but you want to. You want to keep watching this movie and you want to see it again and again, you know, even even if you don't necessarily understand everything that he put on the on the screen. So mm -hmm. he was a big uh, influence. Oh, right on. Yeah, he's uh, he's local somewhat to where I'm at, where I'm at. I'm in South Philly. He's probably about two miles north of here is where Eraserhead was all put together and stuff like that. And the eraser, oh, eraser hood, as we put it. Oh, Ooh, that's a wild nice. Place. I got to oh, visit yeah. that neighborhood. Yeah, it's very, very nice. And shout out to uh, Philomoca. They're an I go, if I go to Pennsylvania, place. if I go to Pennsylvania, I'll visit Eraserhood and I'll visit where George Romero did uh, Night of the... Uh, that was outside outside of Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So pretty far from where I sit right now. But mm -hmm. that is a, a trip that if you come out to PA, that make that your Mecca. Hit that mall and hit the um, the Colonial Theater and check out oh, where the, the law was. is still standing? Um, I, I believe that the mall, like pieces of the mall are standing. I don't know if it's necessarily still a mall, but I know that the architecture is still there and they do have a bust of George Romero that was recently put up there to oh, commemorate it. So, yeah, I got to see that. Gotta see yeah, that. very, very, very worth checking out. Um, so I wanted to ask, and you said that this came out of, you know, an idea that you had of someone just making a script and, uh, you know, having it stolen from them. Does any of the what's happening in this plot relate to the process of making this movie? You know, doing a full indie movie. I, I imagine there's a little bit of Ray somewhere in in your heart. Well, I can certainly speak to how it um, how it relates to me personally because I was in a way like Ray Balfi because I was that ignorant and that arrogant to believe that oh you know I did okay in film school I'm gonna go and take over Hollywood I went to LA and sure enough I wrote scripts and you know nothing worked out nothing panned out that's why I had to eventually make my own movie but um that yeah that's it's, I, it's actually I can very very much relate to Ray Balfi although I'm a little smarter than Ray but you know <laughs> fair enough <laughs> although I get the a dog that that dresses up as a cat to get intel that feels to me like something I would see in, you know, like a DreamWorks movie <laughs> or something. That feels very, very real. Uh, that's something that I imagine could be sold uh, if, if put in front of the right eyes. Interesting point. One of our actors said that to me. He says, you should develop that. That's a great idea. You know, that's the dog that goes undercover as a cat. So, hey. Right on. Right on. What, what about you, Turk? Is there any Ray in you or? Uh, 
I know you have Macho Man on your shirt right now, so I feel like there's a connection <laughs> oh, there as well. Oh, you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, uh, I don't, I, I don't, uh, Frankie will probably say I do, but I don't think I'm anything like uh, Ray. I think I'm, uh, I'm outgoing. He's kind of, he keeps to himself. He, I, I'm very social. Uh, he, he keeps everything inside and that's his problem. He, everything is stuck in this small little world and his, he didn't know how to uh, solve his problems. So at the end, I don't want to give away anything, but as you see, as, as the movie progresses, he doesn't know how to talk things over or anything. He resorts to uh, violence, you know? Yeah, so it was all cumulative. He blows up one day, you know? I'm, uh, He's been mistreated all his life, and sure enough, you know, it all culminates in that one moment when someone ripped him off for the last time, and that's it, you know? I'm pretty social, so uh, I, I, I mean... I guess during COVID, maybe everybody had a little uh, sure, sure. Ray Balfi in them. You know, like we've all been stuck in and we're all going insane. And uh, look, luckily, it seems like it might be uh, over for, for now, at least, you know. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But everybody can maybe relate to this movie uh, being like Ray. <laughs> These, you know, he's he's stuck in this little prison, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't think I'm very much like Ray. But you don't you don't come across as as Ray right now, so uh, I think you are correct. Thank you. So watching this movie, I was convinced this uh, you know I was watching an inferior version in that I was watching it home alone on my little screen. I imagine this probably plays insanely to a crowd. We'll I find out. Crowd going nuts. But we'll I find out on Tuesday. This right is on. our first time like uh, seeing it. Uh, we're we're having the premiere at the Lemley Theater in uh, Lamley, the sp specifically the Royal, the Lamley Royal in West LA. Right on. So let's hope it goes well. We're gonna see. Oh, best of luck. I I, I go to a lot of a lot of movies with a bunch of like film fans, repertory screenings, and all that. Very reactive fans, and all I could think watching this was if I was sitting with you know the exhumed films crowd, they would go bananas. So I think that uh, I think you got your work cut out for it. it should be well, good. Thank you. So uh, before we wrap it up, a uh, couple just uh, unrelated questions I like to do with all of my guests here to uh, go through it. What's your favorite movie? Oh, that's like asking me what my favorite song is. It's just uh, depends on my mood. I mean, I could give you Fair a enough. short list. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the Godfather movies. Uh, there's a great spy thriller in the 80s called uh, Falcon and the Snowman. Oh, great movie. Oh, my gosh. I don't I don't I have no idea why I love it. It's just fantastic. Uh, I like the Unholy Trinity, which is Rosemary's Baby, Exorcist, The Omen. Right on. I love horror. So, you know, that's a short list. I'm sure I could go on and on, but. Uh, yes. I'd have to say uh, Fletch Lives. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, um, well, first Fletch. I love Fletch. Yeah, the but, first Fletch, yeah. But my ultimate favorite, uh, some, a movie that I continue to watch uh, over and over when I come home, like, drunk at night, you know, when, like, the movie that you like to put on or whatnot is uh, on the waterfront. Oh, right on. Very nice. Good Very man. nice. Yeah. What about, uh, do you got any like favorite actors or actresses that you would dream of working with? Well, um, again, yeah, there's just so many, but one guy that anything he does, I watch it because I'm just mesmerized by him is Willem Dafoe. Right on. Yeah. 
Um, for me, uh, like I, I said before to Frankie and we were talking, I would, I think that for like a female, I would like to work with Aubrey Plaza because I like her, her, you know, tone, like she's very easy to work off. She's got this quirky humor and she, I think she could do, uh, drama very well i think she can do anything probably could yeah or and uh, or what's that have you seen black bear her no oh i saw the trailer for that yeah very cool movie. getting to see that movie i'm gonna check that out if you're a fan of aubrey plaza it kind of shows the breadth of what she can do as an actress from comedy to drama highly recommend yeah i think that she's she's got a big you know uh, wide range of things that she could do and of course if it's a male i'd like to work with uh like bill murray Oh, who wouldn't? <laughs> who wouldn't, you know? He's the best. Oh, yeah. He's the man. So, so then I'll throw it into uh, directors. Do you got any directors that have influenced you or that you're a huge fan of? Um, I, well, I, I want to thank you. Well, yeah, I wanted to thank you for bringing up the Coens because they can do no wrong to me. Agreed. So, and so I'm sure that, that I'm hoping that came out on the project that I did, but um, I love Sidney Lumet. Um, the Coen brothers and, you know, of course, Tarantino and Scorsese and, you know, again, the list is so long, you know. So see, I can see I'm all a... of their influence on your movie. Everybody oh, you listed, you so. I can oh, see David, little stamps of it. And David Lynch, of course. Thank you. Of yes, course, yes. yes. My ultimate is uh, John Carpenter. Oh, I yeah. would love to work with John Carpenter. That's ex- that. Those are the movies that, like, I could watch any one of his movies and just, I don't know. Every single... Every every movie is fun that Carpenter does. Every movie is fun. You know, it's a a thrill ride. Everything that he does, you know. I was just watching Starman last night. (laughs) We were just talking about about Starman last night about how he had to make Starman in order to make up for the thing because everyone was so repulsed by the thing at that time. And then, ironically, the thing is now now, hugely beloved. And Starman's the one I always say to people, like, "Oh, you like the thing? You should check out Starman." (laughs) Yeah, I, I like they live. I, that movie so good. relates so much to today. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, unfortunately so. There's so many connect, so many prescient elements to They Live. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, the last one we'll go here is, have you seen anything good recently that you can recommend to our listeners? Yes. Yes. One, one that I'm a little late to the party about was Blade Runner 2049. I finally got to see it, which is the most amazing thing I've seen in the last five, six years. And then as far as a new movie, I would say Titan. It's a French movie. It's spelled, oh, yeah. it's spelled like Titan, but with an E at the end, Titan. You're forgetting Pig. It's, and, and Pig is amazing, too. And Pig, oh, yeah. But, but Titan, it, every scene is a WTF moment, but, um, but, but it's, all, it's, it's all inspired. It's not like shoved in there. It's not for everybody, I warn you. But watch the movie and you'll you'll definitely admire the craft of this movie. Right on. I can second all those recommendations. Yeah. Oh, you saw Titan? I, I I went and see that saw it on the big screen. I love that filmmaker's previous film, Raw. Raw, I saw and that so too. Yeah. I knew I was not gonna miss anything she did uh, henceforth. So I love anything Titan. Anything she yeah. does, I'm gonna watch anything she does. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm such a pure vision. I don't remember her name, I'm embarrassed. Uh, uh Julia Ducornell. I probably completely miffed the pronunciation, but that's that's how I read it. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. She's the one. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> I uh, I I just been. It's crazy because the last couple of months I've just been watching like The Office, and I haven't watched anything <laughs> new for movies. I just been watching like 
office and parks and rec i i buy dvds now. yeah yeah I, I go out and buy dvd collections because they're so cheap oh yeah so i just watch dvds and i, I haven't watched any of the newer movies lately so uh i hey, can't recommend with that it. Office is good. I recommend listeners listen to The Office. Very nice. Well, thank you guys so much for joining on the show today. Uh, uh, give uh, give the audience something. Uh, you know where where can we find this movie? Where are the hopes to be able to see this in the future? You know what's the, um, what's the plan? So the stream is they're gonna they're gonna be streaming on uh, IMDb, Apple, um, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, I believe. Uh, there's there's believe it or not, there's gonna be DVD. There are going to be DVDs and Blu-rays printed. With a uh, soundtrack, with, with and, and a sound right with DMX, soundtrack. Onyx. Yes, they uh, we if you remember a rap group from the '90s, Onyx. Two of their songs are on our soundtrack, as well as DMX. His one, last song. What his last song is on our soundtrack. With Ian oh. Pace and uh, Bootsy. Ian Collins. Pace on drums and Bootsy Collins on bass. So yes. yeah. It's, uh, very cool. Well, so, keep an eye uh, open for that, everybody. I will. I will uh, put out a link for it once it is available. Thank you. We will let you know. Appreciate it. Awesome. And well, thank, we, thank you, so, you much. so much for this time, man. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Best of luck with the film. And uh, we will be in touch. Thank you so much. For sure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye, Dan. Take so care. Yay! Well, that was fun, wasn't it? A couple of stand-up guys, that Frank Martinez and Turk Matthews. Uh, once again, I reiterate what I said at the outset of the episode. You really want to check out this movie. Uh, in doing so, you will definitely enjoy yourself because it's very funny, very clever. But you'll also be helping out a couple of filmmakers who are working really hard to make their footprint in the business and who deserve it because they've gone out and made a really awesome little movie. Uh, so definitely check that out. It is available on VOD. Uh, there's also a Blu-ray that I believe will be available soon, complete with the soundtrack that they mentioned, featuring the final song from the late, great DMX. Uh, so definitely, definitely check that out. And uh, once again, thank you to Frank and Turk for uh, being part of the show. All right. Well, that was fun. Um, I think what I want to do right now is I just want to gush about a movie that I saw last week that is one of the best movies that, not only one of the best movies of recent memory, but it's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my whole fucking life. I'm talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, this is the new movie from Daniels. That is Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, the duo behind my favorite film of the 2010s, Swiss Army Man. Uh, this is their triumphant return. They both did stuff as individual filmmakers since Swiss Army Man. Uh, notably, Scheinert did, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Death of Dick Long, which is also a damn near perfect film. Uh, Daniel Kwan did some, uh, oh no, what is what is that show called? Oh, I, I just had it in my head too, and it is gone. I'm going to look him up and you're going to listen to me Google him because that's the kind of relationship we have here. Daniel Kwan, it is called Nora from Queens. I couldn't think of the name. I was like, Jane from Brooklyn? No, it's Nora from Queens. Uh, but yes, Everything Everywhere All at Once is, and I've probably said this before about many movies, and I'll say it again here, the reason I go to watch so many movies is because there's always the chance that it'll be a movie like this one. 
Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of the most highly imaginative movies that I've seen. I got Back to the Future vibes from it in terms of the level of imagination and the intensity of imagination. Um, it also reminded me of a film that I caught at the film Fe- the Philadelphia Film Festival last year, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. I spoke about that on the show before uh, because it does try to uh, tie into like a crazy narrative device like that. And it's a, uh, but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the way that it's done. But the general plot is Michelle Yeoh of Supercop and Crazy Rich Asians fame, uh, and a lot of other things. She plays a woman. She runs a laundromat. She has a very basic, straightforward life. She has a husband who is the sweetest, nicest man in the world, and he is also uh, just not someone she's very, you know, very much attracted to anymore. Uh, she has an aging father in his 90s, played by James Hong, legend, and uh, her daughter she's sort of losing touch with. And one day, in the midst of a meeting with the IRS, represented here by a hilarious Jamie Lee Curtis, she is sparked, like, grabbed out of her own reality and brought into an alternate universe where she learns that there's a disaster coming across all universes and she may be the key to shut down whatever this threat is. It's pretty wild. And it's the kind of thing that it could be too much movie in the wrong hands where there's just too much going on. There's so many ideas just stacked, 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 stacked that it, it could just crumble at any moment. But Daniels have the skill to kind of lean into that weirdness and use that the just the, the sheer onslaught of plot information tying that to theme so well and directing it in a way that makes it accessible and fun that their power to do that is really incredible uh you know swiss army man was the farting corpse movie and yet it's an extremely moving film that a lot of people really love everything everywhere all at once uh i don't know if i have to see it again if i want to call it better than swiss army man but it's certainly it's at least as tight and it's what I found so cool about it is it becomes universally relatable because she's able to go across all universes. So so many different experiences are spoken to, which what causes, you know, the tension in our lives. And I don't want to spoil by saying too much. I keep saying that, but it's just, a Oh, I just can't stop thinking about it. It has an incredible score. Michelle Yeoh's fantastic. It allows her to use all of her different powers as a martial artist, as a singer, as an actress, as an icon. Um, and it has, and I want to say his name because I don't, I, I don't always know it off the top of my head, but I don't want to, you'll know what I, you'll know what I say when I get there. The, the man who plays the husband is Kei Hui Kwan, uh, who I recognize as Short Round from Temple of Doom or Data from the Goonies. And uh, he gives the performance of the film. It's really incredible. He has to play this man across different realities, different identities, but also being this, the, the heart at the center of the film. Uh, which you don't often see as as that being the dad thing that ends up being the mom thing. They flip that here. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's one of those movies that really, as we say on the show, it is a movie movie. It really utilizes everything about the medium of film in order to give you something crazy. There are are images in here that if I were to describe them to you are so patently absurd that it would probably sound dumb. But not only are they not dumb in the, uh, they're silly, they're very silly. But they're not dumb in the context of the movie, but they're they're so moving. Like there's there's an image in the film that I'm thinking of right now involving some rocks. 
that is so hilarious and so deeply emotional. And if I told you what it was, it would just, it, it, it would never register something that could be, let alone something that is and works so well. Oh, I just loved it so much, guys. It was really so much fun. What else did I watch recently? Give you a little rundown here. I feel bad. The interview, I think, was a little bit short. I cut it off early. I, I think I might have been a little nervous. I don't know. I've been going through, when we did the Oscar yeah, when we did the Oscar episode, the Best Picture nominees, I hadn't seen all of them. As of about an hour ago, I have seen all of them now. So I filled in the blanks on Coda, King Richard, and Drive My Car. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah. My favorite of the three was probably Coda. Um, I get the criticisms that it's just kind of like, uh, you know, it's like Hallmark movie, but you know, what the fuck is wrong with that? It's, uh, it works perfectly. You know, I love Rocky. It's, it's like, you know, it's formula done well, but I think that there are some changes to the formula. So it's, it's not entirely baseless criticism, but it's not a very strong, uh, criticism, but it's just so very well done. Sign language is an absolutely fascinating thing. I, I think it tells a story from it tells this story of a deaf family from a different side than, than you would expect to see. And I think it's stronger because of it. Really great performances. Uh, the lead male, Troy Kotzer. Uh, I think he, he might... I mean, this, this episode's literally going to release about an hour before I watch the Oscars. So by the time you hear it, I could be dead wrong, but I think he's probably going to win. And it's fine by me. He did a fantastic job. I forget who he's even up against. I don't remember. Doesn't matter. The show's probably over by the time you listen to this. But he does a fart joke that's so good, and it involves a real fart, and it involves sign language. It's told entirely in, through sign language and farts. Those are the two mediums through which this fart joke is told. And uh, it's one of two Best Picture nominees that features a prominent and hilarious fart moment. The other one being King Richard, where Will Smith as Richard Williams... Just like he, re <laughs> man, this is so crazy. He he rejects an agent's offer of millions of dollars by silently staring at him and and ripping a fart. And it sounds crazy and it sounds absurd, especially in the context of the movie. That if you haven't seen King Richard, you probably think it is. Uh, but I don't know it works in the moment, and I I definitely laughed. But it was also like effective in terms of of a strong character moment. What him and Troy Kotzer and Coda had in common is when they farted, I believed it. And in King Richard, this is the first time in ages that I was watching Will Smith and forgot about it for a second. Like, he came close with, with Concussion. Is that what that was called? But it, it, that, that movie felt, like, kind of try-hardy. And it was good. I liked it. It wasn't, like, amazing. But he was good in it. But, I, you know, I, I still kept remembering, like, yeah, this is Will Smith. He's doing a funny voice. He does a funny accent in this, too, because uh, Richard Williams is from Shreveport, I believe. And it's the, the the film Twitter asshole in me wants to make fun of him doing this accent because it's you want to be like, yeah, it's just another Will Smith doing a funny voice thing. But once again, when is that so bad? Because it works here. And so many times it would pop in my head like, oh, shit, yeah, I was watching Will Smith. And not because of something that took me out of the character, just you know, in my own mind, I kept forgetting that it was him. And it's, we forget that he really is a really good actor. And I think that there's a pretty strong chance he could win. I'm still pulling for Garfield, my man Garfield. Um, but if Will Smith takes it, I mean, we're going to have a party. We're going to get jiggy with it. It's what Will would have wanted. We'll, we'll celebrate like it's the millennium all over again. 
But uh, he, yeah, I, it's it was a good movie. It's shot very well. I'm bothered by the fact that it is a tennis movie where everybody plays tennis and it's about working hard, but nobody sweats. Like, I don't think anybody sweats in the movie. And I don't know if that was just... This is not a nitpick. I really don't care. But it was something that I kept noticing. But, like, do the Williams sisters sweat? I don't know. They're, like, incredible athletes. Maybe they're, they've transcended beyond sweat. But it's a wild movie, and it's a very nuanced uh, picture of this man who was flawed but incredible and operated through love. It's pretty good stuff. Uh, and a killer soundtrack, too. And then, man, it's fucked up that I'm going to even try and talk about Drive My Car, despite it being, like, over for an hour. And it's a, it's a long-ass movie. I did not feel the length. It was... It's it's one of those... I'm trying to think of another movie that felt like it. You know, it's, it's absolutely nothing like Memoria, but I felt like the same, you know, cast of a spell over me. Or even something like... You know, a lot more happens plot-wise in something like Silence. But it was just one of those big movies that really works its spell, is what I mean. It's got a more mellow pace. I guess it kind of reminds me of Knowing a little bit. Uh, not Knowing. Knowing's the Nicolas Cage one. What is it called? Oh, shit. Is it called Knowing? Oh, no. What did I do? It's not called Knowing. Knowing is the one with Nicolas Cage where he, he discovers that 9-11 had already happened a few years ago. Oh, fuck. I'm gonna, you know what? Fuck it. It's over. Fuck it. I'm done. I'm throwing in the towel. I don't know what it was. It's, oh, man, it's Burning. Burning's the name of the movie. Oh, thank God. I'm so glad I pulled that out. I was gonna be very upset. It has the very, uh, a very similar, like, dreamy feel of something like Burning. And, um... Although, am I thinking of The Burning? No, I'm thinking of Burning. That's what I'm talking about. It kind of reminds me of that in Pace. It's a little bit softer movie. It's not as hard. Um, kind of had like a like an Assayas vibe, like a like a Sils Maria as well, or, a, or an Irma Vep. Um, just kind of had that really cruising vibe. A lot of car noise in the background. There's a score, but it fades in and out with just like a lot of good ambient, diegetic sound. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's going to take me a little while before I can speak about it with any sort of authority because it's just a ton of movie. It's three hours, you know, so you need a couple of days on that. But it was very effective in the moment. Uh, I think all of the performances were fantastic. Uh, some really interesting stuff uh, happens watching it next to Jenna, who's an actress, as they go through their auditions in this movie. There's like a play within a play. It was very funny. Um, yeah, it's it's really intense stuff, and it has a couple, like, surprises. They're quiet surprises, but just really effective all the way. It's like a dream, but, you know, at points are really hardcore. Meditations on grief and loss, you know, because it's a movie. It's about grief. It's about loss. It's about processing trauma. It's about all of these things. So, uh, but it's it's real fucking good. And the guy, uh, the star of it, what is his name? Uh, no, I'm going to fuck up this pronunciation. It is... Hidetoshi Nishijima. I think I actually got that right. Um, he, he was awesome, and he kind of reminded me of, of uh, another crazy name, Yorma Takoni. He just looks like him in a way, and it made me laugh because every once in a while I'd think about him saying cool beans. But um, that time flies by very, very quickly. It's a very easy one to watch. We watched it with breakfast and through lunch. And... Uh, but it's that was one that I missed at the Philadelphia Film Festival just because it was too long. 
it was a day where I had seen so many movies that were pretty long. I think it might have been the day I saw Memoria. And I was like, oh, here, drive my car is good. I wonder how long this is. Three hours! Fuck that! And just did not go. And even though in hindsight I regret it because I would love to have seen it twice before talking about it, but, uh, man, it's a good watch. I highly recommend sitting down and checking it out. And it's very gorgeous. Uh, very well shot, very crisp. Um... The shot choices are kind of interesting, too. Uh, but it, it makes me think that if somebody just shot a car driving around from a bird's eye view in a compelling enough way, you could probably get a couple hours out of that uh, for, you know, just doing it, doing it like a pure cinema kind of way. I could watch that for a few hours. Absolutely. If it's shot the way this is shot. But this is not that. For some reason, I thought Drive My Car was going to be like lock, where it's just in the car. And so in my head, I was like, three hours of that has got to be punishing. But it's not. It's it's all around through a bunch of different gorgeous locales and locations. A lot of very nice textures in the architecture. Uh, just really remarkable stuff. I, I really enjoyed it, but I can't say much more without probably sounding like an idiot. What else did I want? That's what I, that's what I missed for the Oscars. And, uh, yeah, so it goes. That's that. I finished off the the Dark Man series. I, I rewatched Dark Man, the only one that I'd seen. Which, if you haven't seen that, you should definitely put it on. All three are on Shutter, so check them out now when you get the chance. That that's like classic vintage Raimi trying to do Batman mixed with the Shadow, but then and you know using that and then his imagination just stumbled into something real fucking weird and crazy and gross. It's a uh, it's funny, we think like, oh yeah, uh, Liam Neeson started doing action with Taken. It's like, no, it actually like, kind of goes back a little bit further. He did some action here with, uh, as, uh, what's his name? Westlake. Is it Robert Westlake? No, Robert Westlake's a, an author, isn't it? Oh man, what is his name? But he's, and oddly enough, in the sequel, he's replaced by Arnold Vosloo of The Mummy fame. No love lost to Vosloo, but... Um, they look so much like completely different people, and not in that way that like Michael Keaton through Val Kilmer is able to morph into George Clooney. Somehow I kind of like buy that across a Batman, but Liam Neeson to Arnold Vosloo, even behind horrifying facial trauma makeup, is a uh, it's a tough one to buy. And the sequels are very much different movies than they are than the first one is like. The concept set forth by the first one, the the promise of it is not at all capitalized upon by the sequels. I actually kind of did not like the second one. The third one, I think, works in a vacuum while still squandering the potential as set off. And you got to give Darkman 3 a little bit of extra credit because Darkman 3 has the best title of any movie in the history of film. It is called Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die. Um... Nobody says that in the movie. Uh, it's probably more likely that they say Darkman 3. But no, they don't say die, Darkman, die. I don't think that anybody is really, like, mad. For, I mean, of course somebody's trying to kill Darkman. That's always what's happened. He's always run afoul of bad people. But um, I love that first one. You should watch it. Liam Neeson doing, you know, like, uh, post-Noari, you know, grimy Sam Raimi yeah, it's a Batman riff. Him and Francis McDormand, three-time Oscar winner, current wolf boy, Francis McDormand. Remember she howled at the Oscars? That was bananas, but that's why we love her. And she she's like, you know, she's the the, the savvy wife in that, and she's a... 
It's it's a pretty good movie. The sequel sucks. The second one, Return of Durant. Although you gotta love Larry Drake with his soft face and pillowy lips and terrifying eyes, just uh, screaming about things and being a real cantankerous son of a bitch. That's a lot of fun. And two has two really solid deaths in it. It's just such a turgid movie. I think it's worth watching, but it it hurts more than three. And three get three's got Jeff Fahey. We all know Jeff Fahey's number one because he's he's lost. He's lawnmower man. He's Jeff Fahey. You, you know, no, I'm loving. But uh, he's lost. He plays Lost on Lost. It's it's a lot of fun. I'm glad I watched them. I'm glad that the sum total of their runtime is about 88 minutes because they're barely movies. But if anything, go back and watch that first one. That's a lot of fun. And I finally caught up with a movie that I have been dying to watch. I love, uh, is it Gavin O'Connor? Because I love Warrior. Warrior is absolutely incredible. The Way Back last year, probably Ben Affleck's best performance. Excellent movie. I had never seen all of Miracle. I know that Miracle is the more Disney-fied version of that story. Uh, you know, his, his comeback stories as he likes to stage them. It's more Disney-fied. It's more family-friendly. Uh, it's a little bit blander. It doesn't hit as hard. But goddammit, it's a lot of fun. And I'm always in the market for... Kurt Russell being a hard ass and being dismissive of people who are below him. Because uh, you don't often get that Kurt Russell. You get smart ass Kurt Russell. You get smart Alec Kurt Russell all the time. I feel like that's hard coded into his genes. Always a smart Alec. But uh, you don't really get him being a dickhead. And he's like a, a dickhead. He's like a tough love guy in this who's just going to like pound the shit out of the American hockey team so that they can beat russia in the cold war so you know this takes new residence now that we're we're in a world once again where we're at tensions with russia but uh it's it's a great hockey movie it's the hockey movie formula used to great effect i loved it it was uh oh just so much fun watch that on disney plus look at that but yeah you're not gonna find well maybe you would find warrior on disney plus which i recently picked up the 4k of the four-year k can't wait to watch that shit again Two adjacent Rocky movies culminating in one giant Rocky battle for which both parties have valid reason to want to live. Live. Not to want to win. They all, they both want to live. They come to blows and everything's on, everything's on the line. You love it. You love to see it. I think that's all I really watched recently. Sorry that I don't have anything prepared. Um, I guess I can use that to segue into... Uh, Two weeks from now, you will expect an episode. You will not get an episode. Uh, I am recording some bonus material that I'll reach, release intermittently. But uh, for the next episode, that will be two weeks after that. I'm hoping to have something a little bit bigger prepared for you. Um, it's been a very busy time. So uh, just stick around. I've got, something, I've got something up my sleeve. It was something that I was working on during part one of movie movie and now that we're in movie movie 2.0 uh it's it's time for it to come out so I, I lazy it up but i'm finally picking up the pace did i watch anything else good oh you know what this was kind of cool i finished the book firestarter which was really a lot of fun and then i watched the movie firestarter uh, in anticipation of the upcoming firestarter i love nothing more and you've heard me say it a hundred times Nothing more than a fully on fire stuntman. When you get a good stuntman that's fully on fire in real, not CGI flames, there is no better special effect because it's a horrifying thing and it's a special effect that is achieved by a bold stunt performer 
who's willing to light their their entire body on fire with a couple safeguards in place, just knowing that there's a team around to put them out. Firestarter features at least 50 intrepid, young, willing-to-be-put-on-fire people who were lit entirely in fire for this movie. And it's not a particularly great movie. But in a world where we have moved to using different effects to capture flame, which I get, it's, it's, fire is dangerous and it's much safer to do it other ways and we want to have safe film sets. But so much shit in this movie is on real fucking fire. It's, it, it was just on, it was unbelievable to watch. It's been so long since I've seen that much fire in that large flames a lot of it on people who are really on fire and cars that are really on fire and buildings that explode and burst into flames. It's a movie that takes a little while to get going, but since I had just finished the book literally the morning that I watched this movie, you know, I was like tuned in enough to it that, that even through the opening, just watching like, Oh, what's this interpretation of, of, you know, you get that twofold thing like, Oh, what is this version of King? Like, Oh, what is this vision? What is this interpretation of King? Like, cause those are two things that always are kind of in flux and we find interact to different levels of success. And this one, it works to pretty good levels of success, but it does take a while to get going. But once it does and everything's on fucking fire. Oh, it's, it's the, Ooh, man, it was hypnotic. Here's you want to sell me a 4k, sell me this 4k. I don't want anyone to worry about me and think that I'm going to set fires. I'm not going to set fires. Jenna makes candles. We got enough fire going on. It's good. But fire on the... Oh, fire in a movie looks so good. And when it's really on fire, and there's a dude that's just running... What I love about the, the fully on fire stuntman again is that as soon as they catch on fire, there's, there's not a whole lot of acting that can be done because there's only a handful of things that you can safely do when your entire fucking body's on fire. And so no matter what's happening before said person is on fire, as soon as the flame hits them, they go into one of these like three or four moves that you come to recognize after a while. Rarely is it congruent with the, the plot in that moment, but it doesn't matter. At the same time, you know, like, maybe, maybe everybody responds the same when they're on fire. But, um... Yeah, when it's done well, it's done so well. And it's done so well here. Little Drew Barrymore is so good. Uh, very weird that uh, George C. Scott, uh, I that was not who I expected to play John Rainbird, the Native American uh, one-eyed assassin who... Want, who this, this is such pure Stephen King shit. Is his whole goal is that he wants to know death without necessarily dying so he likes to look in people's eyes and kill them to try and see that last flicker and ah yes did you say flicker sort of like what a flame does if he can get his hands on this little girl and be the person who kills her he can then know death and it's the craziest shit it's it does seem kind of dated but he's a really hardcore villain and he's he's pretty well written and, and like in a move that you would not want to make nowadays, that you shouldn't make nowadays, he's played by George C. Scott. And I'm not saying that they that they even like white like whiteified his character. No, he plays him as a Native American man. It's a uh, it's wild to see, but it's it's a hell of a performance he puts on, and um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a good movie, and oh, and we get a double dip from Martin Sheen, who was also villainous in Cronenberg's uh, The Dead Zone. 
And here he plays sort of like the guy behind the shop, the FBI behind the FBI that runs tests on people and makes little girls who shoot flames out of their hands and lights everything on fire. Oh, it was, it's gorgeous to look at. But like, like I said, it's, it's got that 80s cheese. It's got some dated elements, but it's, it's good. And it's directed by, uh, what's his name? Oh, fuck me. Mark Lester. Uh, he did a couple of notable things like The Class of 1984 or Commando. Didn't he do one of the Beatles movies? Let's look that up. Was that one of them? No, he did not. Okay, what has he done that's, like, notable? We all love Pterodactyl. He has a movie here. Marco Lester has a movie that's from 1977 simply called Stunts. And it's called Dying is One Hell of a Way to Make a Living. After a stuntman dies while he is involved in the making of a motion picture, his brother takes his place in order to find out what really happened. You know what? I've never heard of this movie. I would... I, Where's my pen? I am writing that down. I would like to watch stunts. That's me putting it on the marker board. I'll tell you one thing, I arranged my movies yesterday. I have too goddamn many. So Mark L. Lester, he did Truck Stop Women, he did oh, he did Armed and Dangerous, Class of 1999, he did Showdown in Little Tokyo, which we all love, um, what's that one called, Debbie Joe, Debbie Joe and the Outlaw, I kind of want to watch some of these, you know what I don't want to watch is The Base 2, Guilty as Charged, from 2000. With Antonio Sabato Jr. and James Remar. The army has one simple rule. Kill or be killed. I'm going to call bullshit on that. As I understand it, the army has a wealth of rules about every aspect of your life. Like from how you behave when you're sent to the Middle East to, to you know, shoot kids and stuff. Um, lots of rules there. But it goes back to your buttons have to be buttoned a certain way on your shirt. Not a big military guy, I guess. I'm sorry. The base two guilty as I don't know. It, that, that doesn't look very good. But yeah, he, he knocked it out of the park in Firestarter in sheer terms of how many things he lights on fucking fire. It was beautiful. All right, I'm out of time, guys. Thank you for, for listening. Um, like I said, we will be skipping an episode next week. I will be coming back. All right, so next week, two weeks. Coming back two weeks after that, so take a breather. Relax a little bit process the oscars we'll talk about it when i get back but i've got some cool things that i'm trying to set up trust me or don't like subscribe tell your friends at movie movie cast on all of the things um what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna go to isabella pizza and get a cheesesteak and i'm gonna walk the cheesesteak back to my house and pass by the acme and i'm gonna get ben and jerry's and then tonight, we're going to watch the Oscars. I'm going to eat both of those things separately. I'm going to meet both of those things, and that's going to be the celebration. And then tomorrow, I'm going to have to go to the gym. Okay, that's everything. Bye. Bye.